Welcome to Dropping In from Omega Institute, a podcast that explores the many ways to awaken the best in the human spirit. I'm Callie Alpert. Dropping in today, Dr. Gabor and Daniel Maté. Gabor is a retired physician, best-selling author, and internationally renowned speaker, highly sought after for his expertise on addiction, trauma, childhood development, and the relationship between stress and illness. For his groundbreaking medical work, he was awarded the Order of Canada, his country's highest civilian distinction. His latest book, The Myth of Normal, Trauma, Illness, and Healing in a Toxic Culture, is co-authored with his son, Daniel, as is their next book, Hello Again, A Fresh Start for Parents and Their Adult Children. Daniel is an award-winning songwriter, playwright, and educator. He received the Edward Kleban Prize for Most Promising Lyricist in American Musical Theater and the ASCAP Foundation's Cole Porter Award for Excellence in Music and Lyrics. Outside of music and theater, Daniel runs the world's only mental chiropractic service called Take a Walk with Daniel. His passion is helping people crystallize their own innate freedom, clarity, creativity, and true intelligence by discovering what alignment means for them. So Gabor and Daniel, thank you so much for dropping in today. I'm so happy to see the both of you. It's a pleasure to meet you both. Thanks so much for having us. First, I'd like to start with the overall concept of the adult-parent relationship and why it's so unique and why it's so challenging. And Gabor, let's start with you. Well, it's unique because no other relationship starts off so entirely unequally and then is meant to become at some point an equal relationship between two mature adults. As a matter of fact, it's the only relationship that begins with one partner being 100% responsible for taking care of the other and towards the end of life, perhaps, that second person now becomes the caretaker. And all that while they have to negotiate unresolved hurts and misunderstandings and um, issues that come in the way of the natural connection between those two partners. So there's no relationship that starts off so unequally, move towards equality, and then perhaps in a certain sense, move towards inequality again in terms of caretaking responsibility, all the while demanding mutual respect. What's the term, the, um, the expression, the child becomes parent to the man, right? The child is the father of the man. Well, I take, mm. that, I take that to mean in some ways that who we are as children governs in many ways who we become as adults. But it's certainly, uh, I mean, there's certainly also some adult parent-child relationships where there's been a role reversal and the children have been parenting the parents for a long time, but that's a whole other thing. I would just add to what Gabor said that um, it's also unlike other relationships in a few other ways. There's really no blueprint for how it's supposed to be. Right. You know, We don't need each other in adulthood in the same way that we did, which is why many people live perfectly well estranged from their parents or their adult children. Now, there may be grief about that, there may be a tremendous sense of loss. Some people are more blasé about it. But the fact is, once the equality, the parity has been reached developmentally, what nature intends is that the adult child can take care of themselves and that the parent stops parenting as a verb. They don't stop being a parent. And we see this, I think, reflected in the fact that I don't know if we're the only ones talking about this, but it certainly is a niche that we are able to fill. If you go into any bookstore, 
Look at the parenting section. How many shelves of books upon books are there about parenting from conception to college drop-off? Right. And then there's also books about the end of life, saying goodbye to your dying parents. And then there's a few books about, you know, recovering from the narcissistic abuse your parents gave you. But what about just the general course of things, all of those decades in between? What are we supposed to do with them? So that's, that was a curiosity, I think, for both of us that set us going down this path of exploring it. What was behind the curiosity? Sheer misery. Uh, <laughs> we had a lot Not of... Not sheer misery. <laughs> well, I'm exaggerating. Mitigated misery. <clears throat> Mitigated sheer misery. Um, Intermittent. <laughs> uh, we've, had, we've had a lot of issues in our relationship. And um, it was actually somebody associated with Omega who at some point suggested to us that we might want to do a workshop about this. And we did. And those people like yourself who who've watched the video of us talking on the evening of our first event, we see, you see the misery right on stage, along with a whole lot of great stuff and communication and respect and so on. Uh, so it, 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 the fundamental dynamic or motive was our own particular stuff. But the dynamics are hardly unique to us, so they're fairly universal. So going back to your reference to the challenge and tension of your relationship in your earlier years. And you're the eldest of three kids in your family, yeah. Daniel. Yeah. So you were the, the first one to, for your parents to experience. I was the trial the, you were the, the trial what? Trial balloon. Trial balloon? Yeah. Do, do you um, recall who came to the awareness that there were issues to work out first, especially given your work historically, Gabor? Well, I, I came to the realization that in many ways um, I had hurt my children. Um, but that realization didn't necessarily lead me to approach the relationship very wisely. Uh, in fact, in the beginning, when I came to those realizations, it uh, <clears throat> triggered a lot of guilt in me. So I approached my kids from a point of view of the guilty parent who, oh my God, I did all these things, but also uh, from the point of view of not trying to fix them, they didn't want me to fix them. So um, I may have come to the realization first, but that doesn't mean that it gave me immediate access to how to, how to deal with it. That took a whole other learning to understand how to relate to them as adults. On the other hand, when I was five years old, I drew a picture of three dinosaurs two large imposing dinosaurs roaring and one little dinosaur crying. And the caption was, is this the proper way to treat a child? So I knew something was off in our relationship and I was trying to communicate it. Um, and then throughout my teen years and into my 20s, you know, my own emergent emotions about it started coming up and I, be I was becoming a songwriter. And so I was writing songs and I found that I was writing about my parents quite a bit. And I was always attracted to music that expressed some of the emotions I was feeling. So, but again, just because I was aware of that doesn't mean that it led me to approach, you know, repairing it in the most productive way, nor did I necessarily imagine that repair was possible. I think this is the ultimate it is what it is relationship for many people. They just assume that it's, it's baked, you know, once it's done, it's done and you're going to live with it more or less for the rest of your life. It, it hasn't been until maybe really when we started doing the workshop 
that we consciously took on, hmm, maybe not only can we try to like heal or remedy the past, which you actually can't do, you can heal or remedy your relationship to it, but what if we focused on what would it take right now to really enjoy each other and ourselves and to have some new kinds of conversations? People hearing this might think that that's an ultimate irony given your work and expertise mm -hmm. in trauma and bridge building and among many other topics inside of your, your, your specialties. And I wonder if that means sometimes in these families, it's that classic sort of healer, heal thyself thing. Is it easier or harder? You have the tools and you're equipped in certain ways, but does it make it harder to penetrate it when it's happening under your same It made roof? it harder in the sense that I would want to, I would approach my kids the same way as I approach people who came to me for healing. But my kids don't come to me for healing. Mm. They come to me for a relationship. So if I show up as the, the quote-unquote healer, I'm purely um, polluting the relationship with something that doesn't belong there. And so they used to just resist and resent that mm. justifiably. And as for me, it's one of those um, issues that used to trouble me quite a bit that I can help the whole world and I can't help my own kids, you know? Um, but that's part of the point of the learning here is that um, our kids don't want, don't want us to show our adult kids don't want to show up don't don't want us to show up in a particular role. They just want us to show up, and I had some trouble learning how to do that. Or so, go or go away sometimes. Or to go away. Sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> to know, the, know when the time is right. As the case may be. Yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, and from the from this end. One of the difficult, I mean, look, I get, I, hear, I get messages from people all the time, especially now that the book's out, genuinely expressing um, a wish, a very fond wish that their parents would have been as conscious and aware of trauma dynamics and as gentle and as compassionate and as wise when it comes to this stuff as my father. And I can completely understand that. And in many ways, I'm very, very fortunate and blessed that there is a vocabulary, at least, in this family, and some kind of invitation to have that conversation. At the same time, the vocabulary preceded the shifts in being and the shifts in awareness and behavior in the moment, which created in me a real wariness because you're mm -hmm. talking the talk, but I don't feel it. Mm -hmm. I can't feel it, and that, you know, that didn't transform anything. It just entrenched a sense of not being safe because I can't. And it's confusing, right? It's mm -hmm. completely confusing and, yeah. it, and, and it makes me want to have nothing to do with any talk of healing or trauma or anything like that, you know, or mindfulness, like whatever my dad would recommend to me to like help ameliorate my various kinds of woe in my adulthood, like reading Eckhart Tolle or something. It just like, no, that's your thing, you know? don't stop trying to change me or fix me, which, you know, I'm sure was not what he would have wanted me to take from that. One of my children came to a workshop I gave once, and um, they watched me work the whole day with the participants. And at the end of the day, they came to me with tears of rage, saying, you're such a guru to all these people. Why can't you be like this at home? What did you do with that? after you felt that that night? Oh, I totally understood what they said. Yeah. I totally got it. I totally got it. 
And, you know, they were right. It kind of speaks perhaps to the idea of when you know things intellectually versus when you embody them. Oh, 100%. And, um, you know, one thing I'm finding, the more I progress in this work and the more I do my so-called mental chiropractic work with people, are you okay, Father? I'm fine. I've just got this, my speaker's cough. I mean, That was me being loving. Oh, uh, oh, oh okay. <laughs> well, I was half joking. I thought you actually were asking. Maybe you were actually asking. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I was just laying it on a little thick. I thought you were joking. Yeah, I was half joking. Okay, that's it. I'm walking out. <laughs> this is the New Year's over. You can't take a joke. You can never take a joke. Um, well, when it comes to, like, what's the difference? How do you get across that finish line from knowing something intellectually to embodying it? It's all well and good to say, okay, I need to embody it. But how do you do that? The more we do this work together and the more I work with people in my quote-unquote mental chiropractic practice, um, which is completely made up, by the way. I'm not a chiropractor. It's just sort of a metaphor. Um, the more I find that intention is really the key to get over that hurdle because you have to make it important enough to embody it. Like if something is important to you, you prioritize it and you ignore other things. If you have to get across town because a loved one is in a fire and you need to save their life or wake them up to get them out of the house. Well, you know, if you get an email on the way, or even, you know, if someone tries to get your attention, it just, you automatically go where the intention is. And so we actually get comfortable in these stuck habits, and there are payoffs to them that we can examine if we want to be honest about it, you know. So what it takes is getting, actually getting sick and tired of the same old, same old, and then wondering how else could it be. Gabor, do you think that everybody has the ability to... I'm going to use the word shift because that's kind of what I'm getting from what Daniel said. Do you think that everybody has the ability to shift to the degree that they can do um, better bridge building inside of their dynamics with their parents? Well, let me make a distinction between capacity and ability, okay? Capacity is the inner resources or the um, possibility. Ability is a bit more specific. It means can they actually do it? Are they able to do it? Right now. It, yeah, and that depends a lot on circumstances. What kind of guidance they get? What kind of support they may have? What are their internal emotional atmospheres like at the moment? What is their intention? What possibility are they aware of? So, yeah, I think we all have the capacity um, in the sense of potential ability that takes some, some doing to get to the point of being able. Well, what's the synonym for ability is skill. Yeah. And we are talking about building new skills. And no, you don't build any skill without practice, intentional practice. I don't accidentally become a trumpet player. I don't accidentally learn how to grout tile. Does this explain why I can't play the trumpet? Yeah. Okay, I know I understand. Yeah, yeah. Thanks. It's not entirely your fault. Okay, that's good. Absolution from your son. That's great. Yeah. If you did, we could do a concert together, you know? <laughs> that's it, yeah. yeah. We could uh, do Shostakovich's uh, 
trumpet and piano concerto, actually. Oh, wow. It's a wonderful piece. I was thinking more Chet Baker and Oscar Peterson or something. That, too. Yeah. Um, These are interesting uh, new amalgams of talent you're putting together. Yeah, I appreciate yeah, yeah. it. No, I think we were meant to write books together, and that's about it, and lead workshops. I think there's probably plenty of people that would listen to this conversation and this type of offering and find it enviable that there are parents and children in this world that are able to even attempt to even have this conversation and even to have this language because there's so many that can't. So what do you say to people when one person is in that dynamic and is not capable for a variety of different reasons that I'm sure you can name? It's that we both have learned, I think, that it's not 50-50, it's 100%, 100%. In other words, I can make a shift with internal to myself, whether or not the other person comes along that, yeah. that changes the relationship, at least changes my experience of the relationship. So it doesn't depend on the other person. Now, it's also the case that if I make this shift, if I make myself 100% responsible, not for the relationship, but for my relationship to the relationship, Mm-hmm. If I make myself 100% responsible for that, very often, and if I transform and embody a shift, as you guys are saying, that other partner will almost automatically shift, even without intention. But whether they do or not, if I change my relationship to the relationship, my experience is going to be completely different. So fortunately, Ideally, of course, it's great if both partners are intentionally involved, but it doesn't require that ultimately. That's the good news. And there's a special thing going on in this relationship too, and I'll just talk about it in one direction. I'm sure it's true in the other, but I'll speak from experience. When you're dealing with this person, when you're an adult child dealing with your parent, you know, we are wired to be interpersonally, biologically affected by each other. We have a chapter in our new book, The Myth of Normal, called You Rattle My Brain, taken from the, you know, the Jerry Lee Lewis song. You shake my nerves and you rattle my brain. We really do. Now, when I'm trying to have a relationship, say, with a spouse, my earliest childhood traumas might get triggered. I'm going to react to them as if they are my parent and I'm a little child, right? That's one degree of separation. When I'm dealing with this guy, his is the nervous system that conditioned mine. And it's the same nervous system. Several decades down the road, obviously our cells have regenerated. In many ways, we're not the same people, but he's got the same voice. He looks the same to me because I didn't notice the passage of time. So doing the time warp again, as I like to say, is so much easier to fall into that you know, pitfall. Of, of going back to the past. Of going back to the past, yeah. right? which means it takes an extreme amount of consciousness and intention and probably a lot of muck-ups along the way because it is the past is going to get you for a while. And you have to, I think, make room for this dynamic is so deep. You, this is the first person you encountered when you came into this world. They're the one who set the parameters for what life, how life occurs to me, you know, how, how life seems to you, what the world is. So to retrain the nervous system, and especially if you take into account everything that his work shows and his colleagues like Bessel and Peter Levine and all that, well then, it, it's actually kind of a heroic thing to try to, uh, to reconfigure that in adulthood. 
especially when we're living in a time and a society when the parent-child relationship is so often and so endemically fractured from the start. Which, by the way, I think, thanks to leading to that, we have to just broaden the perspective here from the individual parent to individual child. Parenting relationship also happens in a context, mm -hmm. and that context is the culture. And when you look at how human beings evolved, for most of our existence in species that preceded us as humans and in the existence of our own species, parents were not nearly in the uniquely responsible position of raising the child under such conditions of stress and isolation. Mm. We evolved and spent most of our evolutionary and post-evolutionary, uh, I, mean, I mean, in the presence of our own species, existence as hunter-gatherers in small bands where parenting was a communal task. Right. Way too much responsibility and too much stress is placed on parents today. And so we have to at least understand that this is not about blaming anybody or guilting anybody. It's almost impossible in this culture to be the parent that your kid, kids really need. I mean, it's not impossible. Very, very difficult. And in many ways, to be a good parent in this society, you have to resist the culture, as opposed to the culture being there to support you. Hater actually actively intervenes and undermines you. So that needs to be understood mm -hmm. in this conversation. That's so much grace also to grant to parents, oh, yeah. especially these days, well, just to be the, reminded of that. They need all the grace they can get. Yeah. And we do address that issue very much in, in the, the myth of normal. And uh, I co we quote um, James Garbarino, who's a professor of human development, and he says, you know, we have to really understand how difficult it is to um, parent in a toxic environment. Mm -hmm. He wrote that in the 1990s, and it's so much more toxic now. Little did. Yeah, and there's going to be a lot of know. adult children around out there saying, well, okay, but that, I don't want to let them off the hook. It's got nothing to do with letting them off the hook. First of all, you're the one who's on the hook when you're holding on to the resentment, number one. But that will be the case sometimes for a while. You have that anger, and your experience of your childhood is made no less acute or excruciating or, or, raw. or, or raw or traumatizing, yeah. Yeah. nor the ripple effects throughout your life up until this moment, all of the relational havoc, you know, uh, the, you know, everything you're carrying physically and mentally, not to blame it on your parents, but again, your body and mind, your body-mind, was forged in the crucible of your parents' container. And, and consciousness and unconscious. Consciousness and unconscious. Metaphorically yeah. and literally. Yeah, right? Yeah. It's, it's like both and. When we started this Hello Again project, one of my latent, actually explicit fears was that at some point I was going to have to just be like, oh, well, parents do their best and just kind of sell out mm -hmm. on the authentic, the authentic working through of my grievances, you know, that I was going to have to sort of make a moral, um, like there was a statute of limitations or something. Now, ideally there would be, but you actually have to reckon with them honestly. Do you mean griefs or grievances? Uh, well, the griefs that are underneath the grievances, as is yeah. always the case, yeah. you know, yeah. and sometimes yeah. grievances take a while to, to pop open like a, like a clamshell, like an oyster shell, to reveal the, the more sensitive I would, inside. I would also say that a grievance plays the function of not getting to the grief. Well, 
of, it, co of covering the defense grief. mechanism. Yeah. yeah, it does, but that doesn't mean you can force it open. You can't. Mm. Yeah, you know, it needs to be approached with a certain spirit, which sometimes means allowing it for a while, and that's the grace parents can give their adult children. And if that makes you feel guilty, you deal with your guilt. It's not your child's fault. Right. You've probably been carrying guilt for a long time. You know, they're working through something. And it might mean you don't get what you want from them for a while. Mm. But when there's an injury, how do you heal it? One of the best things you can do is leave it alone and tend to it lovingly. And now a word about Omega Teacher Studio. Get ready to be inspired from your very own cushion, yoga mat, or couch. Omega Teacher Studio brings your favorite teachers direct to you, live and online, from their studios for one-plus-hour classes on topics that matter the most. They're easy to fit into your schedule and affordable, too. Learn more at eomega.org studio. To receive a 10% discount on any teacher studio tuition, enter the code DI10 when registering. That's the letters DNI and the numbers 1 and 0. Now back to our episode. I'm curious about the relationship both of you have with the other's trauma and wounds. Gabor, your earliest versions of trauma yeah. are very public and informed your yeah. career. Yeah. And Daniel, I've heard you talk about being afraid of your father, about rage early on mm -hmm. and um, feeling a lack of respect. Um, can each of you speak to your sensitivity toward the other one's wounds before you got deeper into this work? Well. The thing I want to say about that is <clears throat> that I wish I was able to be present enough when challenged <clears throat> to see the woundedness of my children or my son, particularly <clears throat> this son, at the moment when the wound is being activated. Like it's one thing to be aware of it in principle and going back into the past. Um, but like we had a public event recently, recently here in New York, actually, or not close to here in New York, where certain stuff happened, and I didn't see the woundedness of my son. Instead, I experienced what I interpreted was was an, as an attack and and and, and, and a disrespect, this lack of respect, and so on. So. The real skill is to actually see the woundedness not as a general principle, the trauma not as sort of as a historical fact, but when it's present, not to take it personally and just to be present to the to the woundedness of the other and and to approach it with gentility and gentleness and compassion and openness and not taking it personally in the present. That's what the greatest challenge for me is. Yeah, and for the adult child, I grew up hearing the story of my dad's early trauma. I mean, the Holocaust is a pretty, I mean, it's, it's a pretty outsized kind of trauma, right? And one can get kind of desensitized to it or even inured to it. Well, excuse me, Daniel, sorry if I interrupt. Did you grow up listening to it? I don't think I talked about it much when you were kids. You didn't talk about it, but around, it, it was an environment. We would, at the Passover table, I'm not saying it was, it, it, wasn't, la it wasn't laid on too thick, I'm not saying yeah, that, yeah. but I was aware of it. And yeah. certainly since you become an author and a speaker, yeah. you go back to that, I mean, that's your cardinal 
example. We, you know, yeah, we opened yeah. the book with it in many ways. So, I mean, one thing that's left me curious about, or what, or what are his other traumas? Mm. What happened when he was six? What happened when he was 10? What happened when he was 13? Because I can't relate to being given away to a stranger on the street in Budapest in the, in the ghetto when there's Nazis, and, you know. But I'd like to hear about his pubescence and, and the awkwardness with girls and things like that. Um, are you saying that you haven't? What's that? Are you saying you haven't heard ha about that? It, I, I've found it more difficult to pull out that kind of... Have you asked? You asked. Yeah, I think I have. And I would have liked to have not had to. I would have liked there to be more of a, hey, son, I've been there, rather than, hey, son, here's what's going on with you. I don't think you ever asked me about what it was like for me and girls at that age. Not, not that you should have asked me, but... Not I'm, that I should have had to ask. Some, some no, parents no, have the instinct. No, no, there's no reason why I should come to you and say, here's my experience with girls. No, 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 if I, no, 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 that, I'm not, that, understand I'm, what I'm saying. If I come to you in turmoil yeah. about what's going on with me, yeah. one, I think, strong parenting instinct is guidance. Uh-huh, to say this is what it was. Because you've, you've gone before. Yeah. You've walked this road. So whatever the challenge in life is, whether it's money or sex or things like that, I think there's a parenting instinct which gets activated in some parents and not in others. I'm not making you wrong for it at all. I'm telling you what I longed for. Hmm. To is be able to relate to you this is rather that, than learn from you. This is something that you're aware of as, as something that was More missing. and more aware of as I've, as I've gone into adulthood, as, a, as something that was missing. Uh-huh, okay. Yeah. And I'm enjoying, I'm enjoying more and more that I can actually hmm. relate to you. But, but for the, quite aside from that, for the adult child, when you become aware of your parents' early traumas, there can be sometimes a tendency to say, like I said, well, does that let them off the hook? And I think what's underneath that is this grievance. They should have given me what I needed. And I don't want to give them an excuse for why they didn't. And I think, again, the capacity to hold two things at once. On the one hand, I unequivocally, non-negotiably needed something, and they did not give it to me whether I think they withheld it or they just were incapable, again, not able, unable, right? I didn't get it. And I have all kinds of emotions around that and sometimes those emotions are directed towards them on the one hand. On the other hand, they're a person with a history and they came into parenting at a certain time in their young adulthood probably. In my case, they'd never been parents, you know? You can't make the resentment or the grievances go away necessarily overnight, but you can temper them with some awareness and balance them out so that they no longer dominate. And I do think an awareness that, I mean, you and I were speaking about us, but I can say, and I have my mom's permission to talk about that relationship, which also has to be a part of this, right? Because it's not just fathers and sons. Her childhood, I can relate to a lot more than his. It's less rarefied. She just grew up in a stressed home with confusing and confused parents who were really doing their best but had their limitations. And I know those people, right? So that has been something that I can, I can picture that. It's very hard for me to picture what he went through or to even imagine it. I mean, it's, hard. It, it's, it's unthinkable to me. That begs a question about relatability, accountability. You're talking about paradox, number one the idea of holding these two spaces of yeah. compassion and of a need for attribution or whatever, it's complicated. So there's that piece that you just yeah. mentioned. Then there's the piece of relatability. Mm -hmm. And um, Gabor, I'd like to ask you this. 
in all due respect, Daniel, of what you just said, are th does it matter? Are there other ways to find relatability, like just the compassion for your parents' experience or your kids' experience, even if you can't relate to it? Does that help to find your way inside the healing process? You know, I don't like to prescribe anything to anybody. Um, and prescriptions don't work, so I would never say to anybody, you should, et cetera, et cetera, because there's no shoulds. What I do find is that the more people heal their own stuff, the more automatically they relate to somebody else's experience. That's very true. And, and the more automatically they have compassion and the less grudge they hold, mm -hmm. you know? Because grudges come out of the fact that I'm hurt. Right. If I heal, if I'm less hurt, the past doesn't change, but how I relate to the past and how I relate to the person who was in my past changes. If I'm less hurt, there's less to have a grudge about. And ultimately, if I completely heal, there's nothing to forgive anymore because if I completely heal, if I'm whole, then I wasn't damaged, nothing was taken away from me, there's nothing to forgive. So I do think that's uh, what you're asking about relatability is a function of healing, not a, not a prescription. Mm. And as a child who's given to grievances, I, I, I think that's absolutely true. And I think it's borne out by the fact that lately, especially since the book has come out, yeah. I haven't wanted as much from you. Yeah. You know, I've, something has been completed for me. Now, we did have some, some, some um, eruptions a few months ago, but it's the difference, I think, between repair and reparations. An adult child who is incomplete in themselves secretly is afraid that they're still a child and will always be a child and that their parent is hiding the key somewhere. I wrote a song when I was 24 years old that I put on a, an album that I never, that I released and then never distributed because I was a little embarrassed of it. Uh, the, the chorus hook was, uh, I will not be truly free until you give me time to be my own man. Now in a sense, there was truth there. It's like I wanted some space. Please understand, please give me some space and grace. On the other hand, there was a demand in there that you pay me back what you didn't give me. And that debt, even if it existed, it could never be repaid because you can't change the past. And the more I insist on it, the more the interest accrues and I'm the one paying it. You know, resentment is when you drink the poison and want someone else mm -hmm. to get sick, that old cliche. So as I've gotten more complete with my past, which, paradoxically enough, means getting more viscerally connected to the pain and my experience of the pain, not his reportage of the pain, not the facts of the matter, because as we all know from the work of a certain Dr. Gabor Mate and others, trauma is not what happens to you, it's what happens inside you and how you experienced it, which we often lose touch with, which is the trauma, right, the fracturing. So as I've done my work to reconnect with the oof, the ouch, the mm, and I, I nourish myself from that and I, I, I see results in my actual life, then I come to him and I don't see someone who's withholding the key from me. I see someone who... Because there's no key. Because there is no key. Mm -hmm. You know, in fact, because... And there, and there are no bars either. I'm already free. I just don't have access to the experience of freedom, so I act like I'm not. So that's what responsibility, in a way, looks like. It doesn't mean letting anyone off the hook. It means letting the hook off 
You know, like it dis means, dissolving the hook. It means there's no hook. It means there's no hook. So I'd like each of you to answer this question. What do adult children and parents have to lose and have to gain by doing and not doing this work? Hmm. Well, what they have to lose is their sense certainties. Of, the sense of being right. It's my turn, Dad. Okay. Uh, then go ahead. <laughs> um, their certainties. Because the last thing I do, I hate to do, I hate to interrupt you. Yes. So I'd like you to go on. Now. I appreciate that. Yeah. I can tell the joke will will yeah. continue. There's going to be a third one, right? Yeah, because I don't want to be the kind of parent that takes away the space from their son. Yeah. When they're talking, and all of a sudden the parent, I hate to be that kind of a parent. Wow. Yeah. You're a really great parent. You're thank, so conscientious. Thank you, child. I'm so lucky to have you. Yes, aren't you? Um, their certainties and their stories, their narratives, their comfortable narratives. Um, which are not necessarily comfortable, like they're not happy, but we become comfortable with them and they give us some kind of dividend, some kind of benefit payoff, a dubious one maybe, but being right is one of them and avoiding responsibility and things like that. So, um, and also your certainties about what's possible, um, what you're capable of, your certainties about who you are, because if your parents aren't who you thought they were, and if your children aren't who you thought they were, then maybe you're not who you thought you were. Like take an adult, like a parent, shifting their view of their child. Well, up until that point, they may be seeing their child as the unfortunate result of all of their mistakes. But if you actually, which means you see yourself as a perpetrator and a hopelessly broken person or whatever, whatever it is, um, or you might be trying to exculpate yourself, so if you're saying I'm innocent, you know, being all defensive. But if you see your child is like, they're fine. Like, <laughs> they turned out the way they turned out. Mm -hmm. they, you probably filtered out some of the trauma you got as a kid, and they're dealing with, and maybe they're even really suffering, but it's their suffering and they're dealing with it. Well then, who you are for yourself can shift in every aspect of your life. So that's the opportunity as well. There are ripple effects to this that I think are unpredictable, that I think we're, even we're still discovering. What you get to lose is um, something that we all, all hold very precious, which is our sense of grievance and being hard done by. I mean, I, I love being hard done by. I mean, not that I love being hard done by, but I default to a position of, you know... I can arrange to have you harder done by, if you like. <laughs> I'm sure you could. Uh, I know a guy who knows a guy. Yeah. Um, so, so, so we get to lose that sense of um, delicious misery. Certainly from the point of view of the parent, what you have to gain is that you get to not erase, but detoxify the past. Mm -hmm. I mean, what happened, happened. But if you have, a, have an open, respectful relationship with your adult child in the present moment, that means that whatever you may have been berating yourself for has in a sense been corrected or atoned for or reconciled reconciled so you're in a present moment you're just there in the present moment not burdened by the past so that's not to mention the sheer pleasure mm. of being in interaction with somebody you love so much and always have loved so much and and just having the sheer joy of the interaction so as we sit here right now i'd like to ask each of you gabor i'll start with you 
how you feel about each other and potential roadblocks or obstacles that are still a work in progress for the two of you. Well, Diana, I have just completed uh, this really arduous uh, process of writing a book together. It took us two and a half years. Um, <clears throat> it was the biggest challenge of my life. Mm -hmm. uh, and I could not have done it without Daniel. And it was challenged not just in the sense of bringing this material to fruition in the form of a book, but also challenged in working with my son. And I have tremendous gratitude to Daniel right now for, because uh, I could not have done this done, book that's done without him. Um, tremendous love for him, tremendous respect for what he's taught me in the process. Occasionally, but a lot less, there's still kind of worry in me as to when will I step on the next landmine that's going to blow up in my face in this relationship and all of a sudden we'll have a scene on our hands like we did a month ago on a public stage in New York. But it wasn't, uh, it but, wasn't so, it wasn't an explosive scene, but it was hostile. Hey, did you just interrupt me? Yeah. Oh, okay. Guess where I learned it. <laughs> um, but certainly not having seen each other now for about a month since the book launch, and I've been traveling internationally now, but landing in New York last night and then being picked up by Daniel at the airport and then having dinner and then driving here for the two hours from New York, I know it's a real ease, and I commented on this to Daniel, there's a real ease in our relationship at the moment. I don't want to predict that it's going to last forever, but it's just a really welcome sense of there's no tension. I'm not worried about what's going to happen next. And I'm not um, walking any kind of eggshells lest I upset my easily triggerable son. So I'm just, I'm just tremendously enjoying the situation is what it is. That's how it is right now. We'll see what it's like tonight, but that's how it is right now. You asked about right now, right now, that's how it is. You espouse the importance of present, so you're answering me in the present, right? Yeah, with a little bit of trepidation for the future. Um, yeah, I mean, I feel tremendous gratitude, really, um, to you, Dad, for including me in your work, which was already pretty magnificent in terms of its impact and its scope. Um, I've been really enjoying having something of a platform. You know, it's not yours, it's mine. And I'm enjoying that it's not yours, it's mine. Mm -hmm. And I'm feeling more secure. I mean, and what was happening just before the book came out is that all my insecurities about were coming up to be detoxified, really. And I was acting them out. I mean, it, was, it was a little chaotic for me, both in body and mind. I was having all kinds of flare-ups. But the reality of it actually is I can hold my own. And if I can hold my own, then I can hold my own around him. And then I'm not so concerned with how he's going to show up. And here's the other thing that I often forget to say. When I actually sort through all of the negative memories and all of the traumatic impacts, what's left are a whole bunch of really lovely memories of the vibe that we're describing now, the ease, the playfulness, the enjoyment of verbal um, you know, fisticuffs, 
Um, we used to wrestle together, like physically wrestle, and I just loved it. He could make me laugh so much. He told me stories. I delighted in his cleverness. He was playful and spontaneous. And that was not only occasionally, right? It's just that the inconsistency of it was the thing that created, you know, a wound. But when I can tend to the wounds, then the healthy flesh is also there. And I can draw on it to you know, continue and expand that stuff. And now I'm an adult, so it's a different kind of play. We have three rapid fire questions that I'd like to ask you. We ask all of our guests here on Dropping In. Yeah. So the first one is, Gabor, if you had one wish to grant our viewers and our listeners, what would you wish for them? Wake up. And Daniel, what about one wish that you could grant for yourself? I can't grant the viewers a wish? If you'd like to. I would grant the viewers a fresh start at whatever they're sick of, an experience of something new, not having your worst expectations confirmed. What would I wish for myself? I mean, it's kind of banal, but as many more years as possible to enjoy this ride and to see where it goes. Gabor, would you like to grant yourself a wish? Yeah. Um, it's that I find the presence that has nothing to do with what I do in the world that is unconditional and not dependent on activity. And finally, for either or both of you, what would you like our listeners and viewers to take away? One thing from this conversation, if only one thing today. What a couple of swell guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, the possibility of depth and learning and transformation is always present. How it is is not your fault. How it could be, you have no idea. And saying yes to what is and what could be is worth it. You were about to interrupt me at the worst possible moment. But I didn't notice. I did. I didn't interrupt you. I did notice. Yeah, great. I, I, next time, I'd rather not have to notice. Sorry, this is this is this this little vaudeville act is getting ridiculous. Okay, that's it. I'm sick of this conversation. It's over. Um, so finally, if people would like to find you, your separate and collective endeavors, where can they find you? So, uh, separately, I am Daniel B. Mate on the socials. Um, I am. I'm uh, at walkwithdaniel.com for people who want to find out more about what this mental chiropractic thing is. Um, danielmate.com if you want to check out my musical theater stuff. And as far as speaking to the collective thing, well, he's at drgabormate.com and compassionateinquiry.com is his methodology of, you know, therapeutic training and self-inquiry. Um, we have a website that's helloagainproject.com. We're gonna be updating it soon as we start writing this book. Your Instagram is Gabor Mate MD. Yeah. Your Twitter is Dr. Gabor Mate. Well, Gabor and Daniel, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you for making the time today. Our pleasure as well. Thank you so much. Thank you. Will you stop speaking for me, Father? <laughs>
Okay, my pleasure. He hated it. I loved it. Okay. Uh, well, and mine as well. And mine as well. <laughs> Thank you both. Thank you. Such a gift. Thanks for dropping in with Omega Institute. If you like what you hear, tell your friends and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps new listeners find us. If you'd like to see what we look like, watch the video version of Dropping In on Omega's YouTube channel. Dropping In is made possible in part by the support of Omega members. Omega members enjoy a host of beneficial experiences when they donate to help sustain Omega's programming. To learn more, visit eomega.org membership and check out our many online learning opportunities featuring your favorite teachers and thought leaders at eomega.org slash online learning. I'm Callie Alpert, producer and host of Dropping In. Our video editor is Granel Knox. The music and mix are by Scott Mueller. Thanks for dropping in.